as we come to the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, Paul has laboriously gone about establishing and declaring to us some of the similarities and comparisons between the marital relationship and Christ's relationship with the church. At the end of his uh, dissertation, as it were, he comes to the end and says that this, the mystery is really Christ in the church. He says, by the way, it's still relative for your own marriage. So he lets us know without question that God is concerned about what's going on in our house. And that he is using our house to preach to our community. The responsibility causes our knees to buckle because who we are at home cuts to the very gut and root of who we really are. And if we must be yielded to the point that our private lives are open for public scrutiny, then we are very vulnerable. If he just wants to use me from nine to five, I can do that. If he wants to use me from six to nine in the evening, I'm available. But if I am to understand that my whole life is to, is to be the canvas on which he paints the glorious gospel, then I am intimidated because I feel too weak to be available 24-7 for scrutiny. And yet that's what the text is saying, that the very most intimate relationship that I have on earth it's what he has chosen to paint the picture of him and the church upon. And he has typecast me to play a role without my permission. And has challenged me to be conformed into his image. And I am not him. And yet I must put him on and play him. And the better I play him, the better he will answer my prayers. Now, if there were anything that I could do, seeing as I stepped into this situation as a man and was not prepared for this role as a child and found myself halfway through my life before I recognized what life was all about, if there were anything that I could do to save my children from going through similar struggles, is to warn them early as to what the real meaning of these various issues are. And with that in mind, we look at chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with, with promise. He starts right out teaching the children at the earliest ages submission. This is the foundation of who we are. The early years of our training, while the tree of the sapling is bendable and pliable and can be twisted in turn. And so after he spends hours of correcting the adults, now he turns his head and in the same breath speaks to the children. He does not command them to understand the mystery. He does not command them to understand the profound, prolific concepts that he's illustrated in the previous chapters. He starts with the simplicity of their world and their environment. 
but the concept is still the same. For in the scriptures, God is the God of principles and concepts. And if you learn it on any level, you can learn it on every level. One of my first jobs in the, in, in the church was not to preach, it was to play the piano. And one of the things that I learned about playing the, the piano is once you have learned eight notes, you have mastered the keyboard. For the whole keyboard is repetitions of those eight notes. And whatever is true in this span of an octave is true in that span of an octave because the principle is still the same. Numerically, in our numerical system, you need only learn how to count to 10. For if you can count to 10, you can count to a million. Because the difference between 10 and a million is repetitions of the same thing. So it is in the kingdom. If you are faithful over a few things, he says, I will make you ruler over many. And whenever God gets ready to train you for greatness, he starts with smallness. That's why the Bible says, despise not the day of small beginnings. Because if you can learn how to tithe on a dollar, you can tithe on a million. If you're not faithful with 10% of a dollar, you're not going to be faithful with 10% of a million. People who say they can't afford to tithe, they miss the whole issue. Because the principle of tithing is what God wants to put in your spirit, the discipline of it. And if you're faithful on any level, you can be faithful on every level. While God is no respecter of persons, he is a respecter of principle. And he's teaching the principle of submission to children, not by challenging them to go beyond their world, but to operate within the context of one octave, their little world, their sphere of existence, a simple command. He says, obey your parents. Now, listen to this. If you don't teach this, in your, in your own house, you do your children a disservice. And God has to correct years and years of things that you could have saved them from going through if you taught them structure and order at an early age. Because the children in your small sphere of existence become the children of the Lord and the children in the house of the Lord. And if they're not parented at early ages, they don't understand order and structure Teachers can't teach them, police can't police them, and they end up locked up in penal institutions because they resent authority, because they've never been taught authority on the base, octave level, early beginnings, simple principles, eight o'clock, Johnny, you go to bed. I mean something just that small. It's eight o'clock, you get up at seven, fold your socks up, Put them in the drawer. Rules, routine, structure, and order. Teaches Johnny, just because the store is closed doesn't mean you break in the window. Just respect for boundaries. So he says, as Christians, we must become concerned about these issues. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Then he goes on to deal, honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. He indicates to them, he appeals to them on the basis of the law. Of the Ten Commandments, honoring your mother and father is not the first commandment, but it is the first commandment that has a promise. That God says that if you will learn this principle while you are still a child, 
and honor your father and mother that God will lengthen your days for learning it. That would suggest to me that to not learn it would shorten your days. That would terrify me to, to think that I was, would train a child to disrespect me. And because of their disrespect, their days would be shortened. What a strong challenge if you're sitting here today as a parent to think that your loose hand over your child might shorten their days, which you need only pick up the papers today to see what loose training is doing to our civilization. And the Bible speaks to it, that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest live long on the earth, and ye fathers Provoke not your children to wrath. I love how balanced he is. I love that if he says to the wife to submit to the husband, in the same breath he says, husbands love your wives as Christ has loved the church. If he says to the child to obey the parent, then he immediately turns around and says to the parent, don't provoke your child to wrath. The commandment goes both ways. So that there is some security bubble for the woman to submit in because she submits to somebody who loves her, who's endeavoring to love her as Christ has loved the church. And as the child struggles to obey the parent, the parent is then turned around and instructed, don't be unduly harsh and provoke them to wrath. Balance. Balance. Checks and balances, even as we have in our judicial system, our, our, our government. Uh, our, our presidential, our executive office, and then we, we have the legislation and we have the House of Representatives and we have the Supreme Court, all in an endeavor to have balance of power. God balances power, not so that you might have monarchies and takeovers and control. Every gimme has a gotcha. He just, he just, he says, all right. He says, I'm going to just rock steady. I'm going to balance you out. I, I love that. Now he goes deeper. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now notice that the command is given to the father, not the mother. But our society leaves the nurturing of the children to the mother. It is interesting. And it's a great concern. Because we inadvertently have a tendency as men to shirk the responsibility of raising the children and say that's the mama duty. But scripturally, we are commanded as men to nurture and to admonish our children and raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. I'm not so sure that uh, he is saying to us, that we should replace what the mother's role in the, in the house is, as much as he's saying that we should contribute and oversee uh, the guidance of our children, and as much as he's trying to get us to understand that children will ultimately emulate whoever the authoritative figure is in the house, that they learn their value systems from the authoritative figure in the house, and that women often fight a losing battle trying to instill in the children something that they cannot look past her and see in their father. Hallelujah. 
Now he begins to deal with servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, which fear, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with our service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. In their systems, uh, their economical systems and their governmental system and their social classes, they had many that were sold into servitude, many who sold themselves into servitude for a certain amount of years and for various reasons were committed, like Jacob was, to become a servant that he might gain Rachel and ended up with Leah and then became a servant again and ended up with Rachel after 14 years. And for various reasons, the culture of their time caused them to have various social classes. And yet he legislates all of that just because you're in a position of servitude. He says you don't take advantage uh, of, of the master, of the one who's in charge over you, but to work as working unto the Lord. It would equate in our system to working your secular job. That if you're on your secular job and you want to be a witness on your job, one of the greatest witnesses you can be is to do your job. Is <laughs> to do your job, to have integrity on your job, not to take unnecessary advantages, not to take an hour and a half for lunch if it's supposed to be an hour. And not to call your grandmama in Chicago on the phone and act like you're talking to a, a client. Mm, it's quiet. <laughs> I guess I should get off that. that. That God actually monitors how we deal with these issues. Not because God's concerned about the budget of the company, but God monitors our character. The issue is, can he trust us? And we illustrate our ability to be trusted by how we act when nobody's looking. <laughs> I used to minister a message at our church, can God trust you with favor? If you want great favor, great favor is allocated when God can trust you. And the more he can trust you, the more favor he releases into your life. And trust means that when you're left to your own devices, you still do what you're supposed to do because you understand what is, ex is expected of you and not just our service, not just doing it when somebody's looking over your shoulder, but you're committed to do it even when nobody's there because you see your service as being something that you do unto the Lord. So nobody can come along and call you a flunky because you're doing what you do as unto the Lord. And if you're working in the church or volunteering in the church and somebody's over in the corner saying they're using you, you say, yes, that's what they're supposed to do because I said, Lord, I'm available to you and I want to be used. And the only way he could respond is to use me through somebody and I'm doing this is doing it unto the Lord. Yeah, I hear a lot of groaning going on. So many Christians today get in ministries. And in a year or two, they start declining and losing interest. And when you ask them why, they leave the church. You know what they tell you? They were using me. Well, why did you come? If we can't use you. And the crazy thing is, you got one person who leaves because they were being used. And the other person leaves because they were not using you. I left the church they weren't using me. I left the church because they were using me. They were just using me all the time. Asked me to do this and asked me to do this and asked me to drive here and drive there. And I felt used. That's why 
God simplified the New Testament church to the mystery and gave one job opening. That job opening is slave. That's the only opening in the whole scripture. Be ye servants of God. And if you're, if you're too good for that job, there are no other openings available. That's what Jesus meant when after the supper was over, he laid aside his garments and gird himself up with a towel and began to wash feet. And he said, if I then being your master, wash your feet, how much more ought ye to wash ye one another's feet? He said, as good as I am, if I can get down and wash the lowest part of your extremity, then none of you ought to ever say you are too good to do anything in the kingdom. The only job opening here is slave. You take that or you get out. <laughs> mm. If I'm stepping on your toe, would you move your other foot out? <laughs> so I can get that one too. I'm tired of getting that same foot. Knowing that whatsoever good thing, verse 8, any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Knowing that ultimately whatever, whatever good thing you do, he says, you shall receive, but please underline from the Lord. Because the problem with most of us, if any time we invest in a place, we want to reap from the place we invest. And what causes us to feel used is when we have given ourselves over to someone and they don't affirm and seemingly appreciate us, we feel used by them when the scripture specifically declares that God is the one who has to pay you back for your service and not me. And you may be going to the wrong window to get your pay. Trust me when I tell you, after years and years of being in ministry, the real sacrifice of ministry, nobody could pay you for it but God. And he can pay you. And he does pay you. And he said, go into the vineyard and work, and whatsoever's right, I will pay you. And let me say, he pays you well. And if he chooses to pay you well, if he says it is right to pay you well, don't let anybody make you feel bad if he chooses to pay you well. Amen. Amen. For it is the Father's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. And if he in his sovereign will chooses to bless you, don't then spend the rest of your life apologizing for his decision. For he said, whatsoever is right, I'll pay you. And if, he, if you hold your hand out and what he dropped in your hand doesn't seem right, then accept it because that was still his decision. Whether it's a base or a bound. And you really start winning when you get to the point that you give the same service, whether he drops a nugget in your hand or whether he opens up the windows of heaven, then you really start getting blessed and you really prove that he can trust you with blessings because you have learned whatever state you're in therewith to be content because you're not doing it for the return. You're doing it because you love him. And the return becomes the fringe benefit 
that he allocates into your life. Are you hearing what I'm saying? That's, that now, I'm going to tell you, that's a whole lot. If you swallow that, you'll be all right. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. He says, don't, when you're in a position of leadership, don't take advantage of people under you. Mm, let me sit on that. <laughs> That's important. Some people who are subservient live to be in a position of control so that they can dominate and get revenge <laughs> for what they went through when they were in other positions. But if you are going to be effective in the kingdom, when you do arise, and I don't, this is just my personal conviction, I don't think anybody ought to lead who's never followed. I don't think anybody ought to lead who's never followed because then you don't know what it's like to be the other person. And anytime you don't know what it's like to be the other person, you become abusive. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And he says, if God can trust you to be in a position of power and you are still in control and careful that you don't abuse uh, the issue, God will always bless you. If you are abusive, he will remove you. He will remove you. And the question came up earlier about being vulnerable by being in submission. You never have to worry about uh, being vulnerable when you do right. You never have to worry about you doing right. If the other person is doing wrong, before God would allow you to continue to be abused, he will remove them. How will he remove them? I don't know. I've seen him remove them all kinds of ways. I've seen him carry them out. <laughs> Singing sad songs. <laughs> but he can get you out <laughs> he got Israel out from under Pharaoh didn't he Pharaoh started abusing his power making it hard on them had them making bricks without straw and God said okay you're going to abuse them you think they're your servants but they're really mine he says okay I'm going to drown you it's a dangerous thing to abuse a child of God because when you abuse a child of God and they cry out to God out of reason of their distress, he will send a strong deliverer to set them free. <laughs> strong deliverer. In the Old Testament, there's some odd scriptures, uh, and I don't have time to turn to them now, but two, just you might dig them out sometime at your own pleasure. He, he says two things. I believe it's in Deuteronomy. I'd have to look to be sure. But he says two things that are interesting. He says not to use... Uh, unequal measurements like when uh, they when they measured out uh, uh, wheat and barley it, it was like money and if they did not use honest scales they could jip people and so he says use the same scales don't see this person coming and use this scale and then see that person and use a different scale he says use the same scale all the time and then right beside that he mentions to the woman he says that if a woman uh, sees a man and she seizes him uh, by his genitals. He says that woman is to be put to death. And he uses these in the same illustration. And you know what he's talking about? He's talking about taking unfair advantage. <laughs> Let all the men say amen. I'm not going to explain that as clear as I have some other things. 
<laughs> I normally am an illustrated teacher, but I will avoid this opportunity and con continue on with my class. I think that your minds are graphic enough that you should be able to see why God would write something like that. But I think he has a sense of humor, and uh, I just love him. He's wonderful. He says, <laughs> he says, if you take unfair advantage, and that's what this text is talking about, taking unfair advantage, just because you happen to be in a position of power, God is watching how you handle that power. And if you abuse the least of his, <laughs> you are in real trouble. Now verse 10. You ready? The warfare of the believer. We have talked about the workmanship. We've talked about the walk. We've talked about the worship of the believer. We've gone through many issues and areas. Let's talk about the warfare. Because if we are to be a picture, if Ephesians is to be a New Testament picture of the book of Joshua, then that means that we are going to be a warring bride, a fighting church, a possessing church, a church who gets involved in combat and adversaries. That means that we cannot be passive just because we are a bride to the groom. On the other side of that bride, she has to be a warrior, fit and ready for combat because she is openly in a fight. That means that God will give us many things, but we will have to fight to secure them. It means that he will show us Jericho. Let us climb over the walls and eat the grapes and then send us back on the other side and say, if you get another grape, you'll have to fight for it. There are some things that God will show you and let you get a foretaste of or let you get a vision or let you get a dream, but you're not going to get to enjoy it. He'll show you that it's coming. He'll show you that he's going to do it in your life and then put you in a hellish situation where you've got to fight. He'll give you a vision that made you shout one day and then put you in a hellish situation where you've got to fight the next day. And you say, Lord, I thought the prophecy said I was getting ready to do this. And I thought you were getting ready to open up the windows of heaven. And I thought you said, this is my new beginning. And I thought you said, this is my great awakening. And about the time you really got excited all about that, all hell broke loose in your life. And it would seem as if God were schizophrenic. And it would seem as if God had changed his mind. And it would seem as if God were temperamental and that he were not stable but no my friend that is not true the reality is you are part of a Joshua generation and whenever God lets you see something he just lets you be a witness to it so that you might be encouraged by it and strengthened to go back into that other situation and fight your way back up into the vision that God has given you the only reason God gave you the vision in the first place is because God knows and encouraged people are a warring people 
and he gives you a vision. He lets you go first. He lets you get a foretaste of it and then sends you back out in the desert and says, work your way back up into what you saw before because he knows that without a vision, the people perish. And so every now and then, God will give you a taste of something that he's going to do in your life. And just about the time you get used to it, it seems like he snatched it from you. But you need to understand it was just a taste test. That wasn't the meal. It was just to let you know what it's going to taste like. Because God is not going to give it to you until you fight for it. You have got to be a warring bride. You've got to be posed for battle. You're not going to receive anything in the kingdom without a struggle. If you're writing notes, write down not without a struggle. Whatever God showed you, whatever he spoke to you, whatever he put in your spirit, whatever has been prophesied that's going to come to pass in your ministry, in your life, in your finances, with your children, in your marriage, with your grandchildren, I don't care what it is, you must understand that it will not happen without a struggle. Worship all you want to, but you're going to have to learn some warfare. Walk with God all you please, but you're going to have to learn some warfare. Learn the workmanship of the Holy Spirit and find out how you were crafted in the foreknowledge and the predestined mind of God. But when all that is over, understand that you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and do some hand-to-hand -hand combat and drive back the enemy before whatever it was God showed you can really be yours. You have got to be prepared to fight the good fight of faith. My God, my God, some of you, God has spoken to you. He's going to take you into full-time ministry, but not without a struggle. There are gifts and talents and ministries and books and art and drama in you. And God has already put it in your spirit, what he's going to do in your life, but not without a struggle. You've already seen where you're going to take that ministry and where you're going to take that church and how God's going to use you in this area or that area or the other, but not without a struggle. So Paul says, I cannot close this discourse to Ephesus and stop writing to the Ephesians when I know that the wolf is coming to devour what God has invested inside of them. He said, and I've got to prepare them for the battle. Touch somebody and say, get ready, get ready. Finally, my brother, whenever you hear Paul say, finally, my brother, he's getting to the crux of the matter. There are two things that are to always be noted in any sermon, and that's how it begins and how it ends. When a good speaker summarizes a sermon or a good writer summarizes a message or a text or a story, the summarization is the final thoughts that he wants to leave etched into, burning into your mind that it might ever become an epitaph before you of the whole crux of the experience of all that they endeavored to share to you. So when he finally comes to this point in the message, he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He says, I want you to be strong, but not in yourself. I want you to be strong in the Lord. And he says, I want you to be strong in the power of his might. That means in order for you to be a real representative of the New Testament church, you cannot be passive, weak, 
immature, insecure, and indifferent. This is a warning and an alarming warning to the church that you must be strong. I don't care if you have been defining yourself as weak. This is a commandment. It is not a request. It's not an option. It's not something that you vote on. It is a mandate from God above. Be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might. Some of you right now may be going through things and you're saying, Lord, what in the world am I going to do? My finances are up under attack. What in the world am I going to do? My marriage is up under attack. What in the world am I going to do? My reputation is up under attack. This is what you're going to do. Be strong. In the Lord. And in the power of his might. Well, I've been, and I know this is contrary to what you've been taught because this generation has been taught that anything that comes up against you, you can just remove it. <laughs> we, we, we've, we've taught some of the most ridiculous things. You don't have to take it. You don't have to take it. You're a Christian. You're a believer. You don't have to take anything. There you are, a Christian, which means your whole foundation is built on a man who had to take a cross. And they're the guy who had to take the cross and said, if you're going to follow me, you have to take yours. And now we have come down to this era and start teaching the disciples that you don't have to have a cross. How can the cross be the symbol and the epitome of our faith? And then you turn around and teach me that if I have enough faith, I don't have to have the cross. The strength of God is not proven in how much you can cast away. The strength of God is proven in how much you can endure. Christ proved his strength when they nailed him to the tree and he kept preaching with nails in his hands. He ministered. He forgave sins. He interceded. He introduced substitution. He introduced adoption. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. He instituted all of that from the cross with nails in his hands and blood running down his legs. He was standing in the hot sun, dying, forgiving the people who nailed him to the tree. And death could not take him until he was ready to go. Most historians agree that anybody who was beaten like he was beaten should have died on the whipping post. But he held death at bay until he finished doing what he was doing. He continued to minister. Why? Because he was strong in the Lord. He has said, no man takes my life. I lay it down, and if I lay it down, I will pick it up again. Be strong in the Lord. See, the early church was strong in the Lord. Stephen didn't stop the stoning, but while they were stoning him, the Bible said he looked up into the heavens and saw Jesus standing on the right hand of the majesty on high. And while he was looking up, worshiping, stones were beating him all in the head, and he was talking to the Father while he was dying. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This we have not endured anything, ladies and gentlemen. 
it's going to be embarrassing when we do get to heaven and we gather with the saints of the ages and they all begin to talk about what they went through for God and can you imagine what we're going to say to the disciples who were beheaded and others say well I was skinned alive they boiled me to death and one would say well I was crucified upside down for the Lord and others would say my whole family was put to death and all of them begin to talk and then this generation comes up and say well what did you go through somebody talked about me They just talked about me so bad. I was in charge of the spaghetti dinner and they didn't bring salad. I really went through. They didn't like me in the choir. Every time I sang my song, they didn't support me. We're really going to be up against it. Because we had to go back to the bank three times to get the loan. And that's suffering for the Lord. Suffering for the Lord is fanning because the air conditioners went out in the service. Suffering for the Lord is not getting your parking spot. You had to walk all the way across the parking lot to get to the service. I mean, really, if, if you were in a testimony service in heaven and you were listening at the saints of the ages talk about what they went through, would you have anything significant to say? How dare we complain about these light afflictions? If we don't get busy, we're not going to have anything to say in heaven. We're going to be on the back row. <laughs> Over in the corner with our head in between our legs. Just saying, thank you for letting me in. <laughs> I'm just glad to hang out with you, good brothers. <laughs> you know? Let me tell you what's happening. Paul later teaches in Thessalonians that the mystery of iniquity has already begun to work. The mystery of iniquity is Satan's answer to the mystery of the church. He is unveiling it in stages too. As he unveils it, church, I need you to understand something. We're not seeing martyrs now. We're not seeing people boiled alive. We're not seeing people crucified up down, upside down. Because the warfare has entered into the spirit world. And while you are not seeing people crucified physically, while they are not skinning us alive physically, the mystery of iniquity has evolved to such an extreme level of spiritual warfare that the techniques of the satanic warfare that we are up against have moved out of the physical realm altogether. 
It is this age that many people describe as the Laodicean age that outwardly looks like that you are rich and increased with goods and lacking nothing. But somewhere up under that mask and that facade and that veneer of success, you are naked and wretched and blind. It is this age where Satan's technology has moved into the spirit world where you wake up in the morning as tired as you were when you went to bed at night and you can't even figure out why because your spirit has been warring all through the night and you've been wrestling in the spirit world and you're troubled about something and you don't even know what it is. No, he's not shooting you with external guns, but he's shooting you with spiritual warfare and weaponry and no, he's not crucifying you physically, but he's crucifying you through loneliness and lust and frustration and spirits of unrest and getting up and driving around and around and you don't even know where you're going, but the restless spirit is plaguing you because he's not fighting you anymore with flesh and blood, but he's moved into another realm of technology and you're not being fought outwardly like the apostles were being fought. But don't you think for one minute that that devil has gone to sleep he's fighting you in the warfare of your mind that's why they're having nervous breakdowns and stress attacks and losing their mind because he's moved and sent his secret agents into the spirit world to come against you till you're laying in the bed and you don't know why you can't sleep but you're up all night long and it's because something is happening over top of you and there's warfare in the heavenlies all around you that's why husbands are leaving their wives and they don't know why they're leaving them they just say I got to go I still love you it's not that I don't love you I'll send you money I'm leaving no it's not another woman I just got to go well what's sending you I don't know I got to go she's leaving him she doesn't know why she's got to go she's got to go she's falling in love with somebody else's husband she doesn't even know why she loves him he's not any, even somebody she would be attracted to she doesn't even like anybody that looks like him but she likes him so much she's dreaming about him and she doesn't know why she's dreaming about him and it's because the spirits and the demons are coming against you and attacking you and planting thoughts in your mind that are not even your thoughts and you are fighting all the time and it's a fight to hold your house together and it's a fight to finish your assignment and it's a fight to get out the bed in the morning finally my brother be strong you have gotten close to your promised land when you hear the barking of the wolves for Paul said after this wolves shall come grievous wolves shall come against you when you see these kinds of wolves attacking you that means you you're in the spot when you see the Hittites and Jebusites and Gerasites and their chariots circling over top of you. You're in the spot. When something is trying to drive you back and you don't even know why and you find it difficult to do right and you can't even explain it, you're in the spot. When you find yourself crying but you can't articulate what you're crying about, you're in the spot. The mystery of iniquity is being unraveled in your life. 
and Satan has progressed the warfare on you until things are wrong that you can't even point at. Used to be you could just listen what's wrong. <clears throat> you say, well, this is what's wrong and this is what's wrong and you could pray about it. You knew what you needed God to do. Now you're troubled and you don't even know why. Left two jobs. Didn't even know why you left them. Just couldn't go there anymore. Left the ministry. Being fed, being blessed. Just, I just couldn't stay there. Just, I just had to go. Children have to leave the parents. The spirit of divorce has gotten so bad. It used to be just a matter of the fathers and mothers divorcing. Now the children. The spirit of division has become so strong that now children are divorcing their parents. Whoever heard of such foolishness? It's spiritual warfare. And I don't want to try to make you weird or anything, but understand that you're going to have to look a little deeper than the flesh. Because you have entered into another realm of attack. David said, he teacheth my fingers to war. What it means is, teach me how to fight this kind of fight. Some of you are in a spiritual warfare, but you're using natural weapons. If it were a natural fight, you were tough in the natural. <clears throat> You're quick with it. You think smart. You think fast. If it were just a natural argument, you could hold your own. You're good at it. You know what to say back. But what's fighting you ain't talking. <clears throat> if it were a matter of just taking up fisticuffs and punching them out, you could hold your own. But it's nothing you can punch. And there you are in a fight, and the only thing you've ever been taught was natural weapons. And yet the scripture says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, bringeth every thought into captivity unto the obedience of Christ. And so what you're doing, you're being hit in the spirit, but you're trying to be tough in the natural. And the more he hits you in the spirit, the more volatile you become in the natural. That's why you're so moody. Can I go deeper? You're moody because the only weapons you have are your old weapons. And so you're being attacked and you respond. But you respond in the flesh. But you're being stabbed in the spirit. So when he says to the church at Ephesus to be strong, he says in the Lord and to have power and to be strong in the power of his might and not yours. <laughs> Looks like I got your attention. I like it when you look interested. He says put on. Somebody say put on. Put on. My God, Paul is head us putting on stuff. 
in every chapter. Goodness gracious, I feel like I'm in a dressing room. Have you ever gone to a department store to try on clothes, you know, or you got to try on two or three or four or five? Don't you just hate it? You know, after a while, you just start guessing. You look at it, you say, that'll fit. <laughs> it's always when you got on the wrong shoes and stuff, you got to take off everything. And <clears throat> well, that's, that's the way this is. He's got us taking off and putting on and taking off and putting on. And now, as he takes us into the warfare, he says, put on the whole armor of God. Now, anytime you put on the armor, that would be an indication it's going to be a fight. You know we're not talking about worship. We just came out of the bedroom in the last chapter. I mean, just as intimate as you, as you care to be. As tight together as you cleave one flesh. God has held us so in his arms in the previous chapter that we just went limp in his arms, turned into his bride, laid our head on his breast, and knew that we were covered by his protection. And in the next chapter, he snatches us from the warm embrace of his intimate touch and says, put on the whole armor. And that's the way life is. You're going to worship one moment and go right into warfare the next. And it's all God. <laughs> it's all God. He says, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Underline stand. Because stand is crucial. Everything that you are about to put on is being put on to you, not so that you might progress. It's being placed on you so that you might be able to stand. Hallelujah. Why are you excited? I'm excited because, number one, the very fact that he told me to put it on that I might stand means I'm in the right spot. He has walked me up to the spot that I need to stand in. And now he says, you are in your promised land. Don't let any of the things you see make you think that this is not yours. I don't care how high the walls are. Don't care how many chariots you see. Don't care how many problems have come against you. Don't care how many inner weaknesses and fears you have. You're still here. All you have to do is to develop the tenacity to stand. He just got through telling you not to give space, place to the devil. It means once God has set you into the promises of God, it's going to take warfare for you to be able to maintain and sustain what God has given you. 
So don't just fight your way into it and think the fight is over. Because the real fight begins when you get there to hold on to what he's given you. You are in the promised land now. No more delaying your celebration. This is the place whereby the Lord God said, I will give it thee. This is your field of dreams. Don't let the fight fool you. This is your promised land, but not without a struggle. Stand. Don't let the wind blow you. Don't let the doctrines move you. Don't let the cunning slight of men's tongues sway you out of your spot. Once God has placed you in a position, stand. Oh my goodness. Now I'm beginning to understand the iniquity, the mystery, what Satan is trying to do. He's trying to move me. No wonder Paul said none of these things moved me. He's trying to dislodge me out of my spot. And I'm going to have to be fully girded just to be able to stand. And that means something is trying to move me. I don't have to be progressive. I just have to refuse to digress and stand right here and speak those things that are not as though they were until they become what he has promised. Am I speaking to anybody? Stand. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand. It is his armor, but it's your stand. That's important. Because the armor isn't going to take the stand for you. It's his armor, but it's your stand. That means your will is a factor. His armor is just going to help your will to be enough. Without his armor, your will will not be enough. You will not be able to fight this with willpower. <laughs> but it's no need for me to give you the armor if you don't have the will. It's going to be his armor, but it's going to be your stand. Is there anything that God has given you that you feel strongly enough to take a stand for. Well, that's the stuff you want the armor around. Because the armor I'm about to give you is only for people who care enough about something to take a stand. No need in putting armor on a runner.
nobody who's getting ready to run a race puts on armor. If you put on the armor, you're not dressed for speed. You're dressed for battle. That means you're ready to defend the gates. Are you ready for this? Now, this is important because in the previous chapter, he's just identified the Lord as being the one who went down into the lower parts of the earth and led captivity captive and gave good gifts to men. So he has identified in that one statement that Christ the king is the captain of the host. He is, he is a warrior himself. Let me take your mind back to the book of Joshua for a moment. Can I, can I move around with you a little bit? You remember when Joshua got ready to take a stand and get Jericho. Before he did it, he ran into the captain of the host. And when he saw the angel, the angel pulled out his sword. He said, who are you? He said, I am the captain of the host said, take off your shoes for the ground you stand on is holy ground. And then he began to tell Joshua how to get the victory. That's what Christ did. Christ is the captain of the host. He went down into the lower parts of the earth and kicked the gates of hell in and led captivity captive and rose up and gave good gifts to men so that he might teach you how to possess the gate of your enemy. You see, your promises are locked up behind a problem. And the problem is nothing but wrapping around the promise. And you cannot allow the promise to intimidate you from get the problem to intimidate you from getting the promise. So once you see this is the promise, don't let the problem make you back up off of what God said was yours. Because he has given you the land to possess it. But you got to fight to get it done. Now why do we need to talk to him? Because he has a strategy for every attack of the enemy. And if you don't get his strategy, you're not going to get the victory. It almost sounds like a, 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 council, a, a, a council of chieftains and warriors coming together to strategize for a conflict. He ends all of this teaching after teaching us about all of the various things about the believer. He finally comes down. He's not talking about the wealth of the believer anymore, nor the walk, nor the worship nor the workmanship. He says, before I close this letter, I've got to tell you, it's yours, but you got to fight. And he says, you're going to have to take a stand in order for the promises of God to come to pass in your life. I want to give you a few little weapons here. Let's see. He says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now that right there is enough to blow your mind. Let me tell you something. New Testament church, we have become so secular that we think everything we're fighting is natural. We have been so worldly that whenever anybody's got a problem, 
we immediately say they need counseling. You know why we have leaned so much toward those solutions? Because we have not been taught how to wrestle anywhere else but in the flesh. And maybe some of you have not been saved enough, long enough to remember. But the old church, when I say old church, just a, just a generation ago, didn't counsel anybody. They would put you on the altar. And they do something that this generation never heard of. They plead the blood. And they start calling on the name of the Lord. And they didn't know much Greek and they didn't know much Hebrew either. But they would call on the name of the Lord with so much power that something would break over top of your life. When it broke over top of your life, you were changed. <laughs> I better not talk about that because I'll get, I'll go all the way out. See, see, they were, they were operating in another realm. They were operating in a spirit realm. You are not wrestling. I understand because some of you are dealing with some problems. I feel in my spirit that God's got you here to get some weaponry and get some strength and get some preparation so that when you walk out of this class, you can just take the devil head on and knock his teeth out. Amen. Amen. And the first thing he wants you to know is that whatever it is you think you're fighting, that's not it. He says, you are not wrestling against flesh and blood. You're not wrestling against a physical problem. You're not wrestling against a person. You're not wrestling against a budget. He says up underneath the surface, you're wrestling with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. I wish, oh God, help me to teach this. Help them to just catch a glimpse in the spirit world of what is hovering over their house. Help them to see what they are really fighting so that they can quit whimpering over little things that don't matter and go into real spiritual warfare. Please, Lord, help them to see that their spouses are not the enemy. Help them to see that that person at work is not the enemy. Help them to see that their past or their parents are not the enemy. That Satan has a strategized, organized system of attack for their detriment. And that he is busy activating and detonating bombs that are exploding in the spirit world while they are complaining in the natural. Oh God, open somebody's eyes in this room and let them see what we are really dealing with. Deliver us from acting like the world for a moment and let us see that up underneath all of this physical things that there is spiritual conflict going on. Help them to understand why they can be 30 years old and wake up in the morning feeling like they are 65 and 70 because there is conflict in the heavenlies and spiritual warfare. Lord, help them to understand why things that work out on paper don't
don't work out when they try to put them in force and why the money keeps getting tied up and why their finances are up under attack. Help them to see that there are demons that have been assigned to destroy them and to stop them from reaching the place that they need to be in God so that they'll quit arguing with people and being short and fall on their face before you and start moving demons and powers and forces of the enemy help them to see that you need in this earth an army that is equipped with spiritual warfare and weaponry and that's armed and dangerous help them to understand that the president doesn't have a button that he can push that can stop this spiritual warfare that the only thing that can stop the onslaught of the enemy is the church of the living God who's baptized in power and filled with the anointing Let me show you something. Are you getting something out of this? Let me show you something. Go to Hebrews 11 for a minute. <coughs> three. Hebrews 11 and three. If I was the devil, I wouldn't even let you come here today. Anybody have to go through something to get back here today? Now you know why. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The B clause is what I want to work on. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. God says everything that you call physical was made from something that is not physical. The things that do appear were not made from things that do appear. That means that there are two spheres of existence. Hard for me to say that with a gap in my teeth. <laughs> but you understand me. The spiritual sphere and the natural the spiritual realm is the parental realm from which everything natural evolves. The natural realm is an outworking of the spiritual realm. When it comes to the promises of God, what God has for you in the spirit only shows up in your natural by faith. Faith then becomes the passageway from which the spiritual blessing that according to Ephesians 1 and 3 you have already received needs a passageway to come out of the spirit and come over into the natural life and it comes by faith. And now it shows up in your life. But it was yours in the spirit before it showed up in your life. That's why when you received it in your spirit, you knew it was yours. Though you hadn't possessed it in your life yet, you were happy about something you couldn't even see because your spirit knew that you had gotten a breakthrough. Even though the mailbox didn't show it or the lump hadn't shrunk 
or the son hadn't gotten saved yet, still you got a release in the spirit. And you knew it was only a matter of time till what you got in the spirit walked through the passageway and showed up in your life. Good God. Uh, and when that happens to you, if you are a spiritual being, you know what I'm talking about, you get excited and you can't even explain what you are excited about because nothing has changed in the natural yet, but you know it's yours. Though eyes have not seen and ears have not heard and it's not entered into the heart of man, what God has in store for you, it has been revealed unto you by the Spirit. And you know it's yours. And all of a sudden, you're not worried about it. You know they're getting ready to shut down the company, but you're not worried about it anymore because you have a peace about it. That's because you received it in the spirit. And things that do appear were not made from things that do appear. So if the enemy were going to slither in and attack, it would be foolish for him to fight over there when all the blessings that show up over there come from over here. Now, if you could get happy about something you couldn't even see because you received it in your spirit, then if the enemy attacks in the spirit world, you can become frustrated about something and you don't know why you're being frustrated because you see no outward attack in your natural life, but there's a disruption in the spirit. And all of a sudden you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and you're worried about something and you don't know what it is. It's because there's warring in the spirit. There's warring in the heavenlies. And instead of walking around the house looking silly, you need to go into spiritual warfare and put on the whole armor of God. back to Ephesians. I got to hear you. I'm almost <coughs> Look at somebody and tell them I know what to do now. <laughs> You're fighting against spiritual wickedness in high places. Verse 13. Wherefore or for this reason Take unto you the whole armor. So you are not the armor. So don't be running out there naked. <laughs> Talking about, I tell you one thing, I just, I just, you know. You know me, I don't take no junk and I just. <laughs> Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that she may be able to withstand, there that word is again, in the evil day. Right? Underline day, because it's only a day. The evil that you're dealing with is just for a day. That's why I told you to stand. Because the day has a time limit. And if you stand, it will soon be over. 
That's what Jesus did in the wilderness when the enemy came against him. He stood against him with the word of God till the enemy couldn't stay any longer. And the Bible said he left him for a season. He had to get out of there. His time was up. Your evil only has a day. And if you just keep standing, the day will soon be over. <laughs> oh my God. You know what? I feel a spirit of encouragement coming right in the room. I don't even know what it's coming about. I don't know who it's coming to. I don't know who needs it. But I feel a spirit of encouragement coming in the room right now. That whatever you're going through, it's not going to last that long. God is just teaching you how to stand against opposition. And having done all to stand, if you just stand there against the enemy, that day is almost over. I don't know. I don't know who that's for. I don't know. And maybe it's somebody on television. I don't know. But somebody needs to hear that today. They need it today. They need it today. Somebody shout today. today and having done all to stand <laughs> he said in that one day it's going to take all you can do to stand having done all to stand stand therefore with your loins go about with truth now we're getting into something now we're getting in, are you with me he says, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth okay he said I want you to cover your reproduction organs with truth. Only birth truth. <clears throat> Don't let anything come through your womb or through your reproduction system that is not truth. Don't produce anything that's a lie. Don't produce anything out of your past. Don't produce anything out of what somebody said about you. Don't produce anything that's based on what you see in a temporal circumstance. Gird your loins with truth. I wish I had time to talk about that. Okay, that's enough of that. We'll put it in the book. And then put on the breastplate of righteousness. <laughs> I'm having a time with this. Are you having a good time? Cover your heart with the righteousness of God. Your heart in the scriptures is your spirit. Cover your spirit with the righteousness of God. Not your righteousness. The righteousness of the Lord. You'll never get the victory counting on your own righteousness. I know I should have it because I, li I lived well uh, and I've, I've, I've fasted for 22 days and 36 minutes. Because mm -hmm. mm -mm. sometimes you're going to have to have something. You don't have 22 days to get it. You're going to have to wrap your spirit up in the righteousness of God. That's why you have to understand the righteousness of God. Because that's what guards your heart. The breastplate of righteousness. Let me give you the rest of it. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Watch where you're walking now. You're in a fight. And you're covering your path with the gospel. You're making your steps stay in alignment with your prophecy. Walk out with your feet what you believe in your spirit. You read in Habakkuk, 
it'll say write the vision and make it plain and let him that read it run thereby and I used to teach at home write it read it and run it you write it you read it and then you run it say that with me write it read it and run it that's what you're gonna have to do whatever God said he was going to do in your life whatever he said he was going to give you you write it you read it and you run it that means I ought to be able to look at your feet and know what he said <laughs> mm -hmm. let your feet be girded uh, with preparation of the gospel of peace 16 above all things taking the shield of faith I gotta talk about that wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. In, 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 in Paul's day, when they were fighting, what they would do is they would dip the arrows down uh, in, into a, 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 a combustible fluid, and they would light it so that when they shot it, the arrow would be burning when it hit the target. And when the enemy saw that they were using fiery darts, they started preparing their shield. In fact, they would soak the shield in water so that when the shield was wet with water and the fiery darts came against it it would quench the fire and stop the dart so he said that your faith your shield your shield of faith ought to be soaked you are cleansed by the washing of the water by the word you ought to have so much word in your conviction that when the enemy shoots the fiery dart, the fire is put out by the word that you have in your spirit. And the enemy is not able to get through to you because your faith, which is, which is a result of the word, is able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. It did not say that faith would stop him from shooting. But it said when he shoots it, it won't affect you because faith will protect you. Or let me say it this way. No weapon formed against you shall be able to prosper. But it doesn't say it won't be formed. It will be formed and it will be shot against you. And they will say it about you. And there will be a rumor against you. And they will say they're going to take the position. And they will stand up in your face. But when they stand up, you will lift up the shield of faith. And it will stop it from being effective and quench the fiery darts of the wicked. I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. Take the helmet of salvation. Cover your mind with, with the basic principle that you are saved. Don't spend your time rejoicing about the blessings, the givings, the prosperities, the anything. Rejoice in the fact that you are safe. I got to run. I'm almost out of time. Because I got to deal with this. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. Whenever the spirit gets ready to fight, it will always use the word of God. We'll fight with the word. The sword is the only item in the list that is aggressive.
And whenever you get ready to come back at the enemy, you come back at him. It is written. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. See, if you really want to do him damage, you come back at him with the word of God. Is anybody getting anything out of this? Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, watching thereto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, now, now I'm going to close with this. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Then he gives some final closings and tells them about who's going to send the letter and all of that. And he's done. But this is what he wants them to do. He says, I want you to go into all type of prayer. And supplication, praying in the spirit, travailing in God, laying before him. This generation has done marvelous with praise and worship, but we've done little with prayer. We've done more with praise and worship than any other generation. We've got praise singers and praise dancers and praise banners and praise trumpets and praise kitties and praise dogs and praise cats. We've got all kinds of praise. We all know all about sending Judah first. We know how to Shabbat. We know how to Halal. We know how to Tehillah. We know how to do everything. We do everything. The bump, the slide, the mummy, and the willy. We do everything you can do. We do, we do all of that real good. But we don't pray anymore. We don't pray. We don't pray. If we could give up 50% of our dancing for a little more praying. If we could just take a minute and start praying and tearing down the strongholds of the enemy that are coming against you and your house and your generation. And Paul said, when you pray, pray for me because I am pregnant with the mystery. Because those of us who carry the mystery are the most vulnerable. We are on the hit list of hell. Because if that devil lets us live, we empower you. And if our ministry is effective, if this tape is effective, if this class is effective, then you will leave this room pregnant with what I have put in your spirit and somewhere along the way you will give birth to what you have been taught in this class. Give the Lord a praise. So we have the book of Ephesians. I'm going to finish. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Let's do something before we go. To him whom much is given, much is required. Let's take a moment and join hands and pray that we might do something with this word. Since God just blessed you to receive this word in your spirit. And I have the strangest feeling. I don't even know what I was speaking to, but I have the strangest feeling that I was speaking to situations and circumstances and issues and areas of your life. 
and to him whom much is given much is required my god i sense the presence of the holy spirit in this room right now a spirit of supplication is in this room right now you're going right into spiritual warfare right now hallelujah you're going right into the enemy's camp right now go in there and take back what he stole from you go in there and do spiritual warfare go in there and receive it now in the name of jesus oh we bless you father we magnify you we lift you up and exalt you we thank you for your presence my god we thank you for your anointing loose the anointing of the holy ghost in this room stir up the gifts that lie within them stir them up 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 a joshua generation stir them up stir them up a generation of warriors a generation that are ready to possess the things of god stir stir them stir them stir holy ghost stir 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 Stir, my God. Thank you, stir, stir, send the stirring. My God, send the stirring. My God, send the stirring. Oh my God, I feel yokes breaking. Yes, 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 yes. Break through church. I feel yokes breaking. Break it in the spirit. Break it. Spirits of depression broken right now in the name of Jesus. Spirits of heaviness broken now in the name of Jesus. Spirits of despair broken now in the name of Jesus. Spirits of perversion broken now in the name of Jesus. Spirits of stress broken now. Nervous breakdown break now in the name of Jesus. Disease is broken now. Afflictions broken now. Blood disorders broken now. Infirmities broken now. We break it in the spirit. We receive it in the body now in the name of Jesus. We bless you. We praise you. We magnify you. We lift you up. We exalt you. Oh, you're worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy, God. Oh, you're worthy. You're worthy, Lord. You're worthy, Lord. You're worthy, Lord. My God, you're worthy. You're worthy, sir. We bless you and praise you. Thank you, Lord. We're pregnant. Something's kicking in the womb. Something's kicking in the womb. Something's kicking in the womb today. Something's kicking in our spirit. My God, thank you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Now give him glory and praise and honor.